You're listening to I Like That Story, a podcast put out by myself, Jeff Gould. This is a different version of it. This is a serialized podcast. These are half-hour programs as I read out loud a crime novel I wrote a number of years ago called Dead Air under my pen name, J.J. Gould. We'll be talking about uh, how the creative process works, specifically the voices for the characters in this uh, episode, and we'll get to that after this. This is podcast number four, so if you're just joining us, you might want to back up and go to the first one. Otherwise, thanks for joining me for this episode. A problem is dealt with. In the dying town of Dancing, South Dakota, Salvation comes in the form of a rich, retired basketball player who promises to build a gaming casino and hunter's paradise. The only person suspicious of his motives is a down-and-out reporter from the local radio station, and the only evidence he has is a garbled message recorded by accident by a scared and desperate heiress. Episode 4 of Dead Air. A problem is solved. Chapter 13. Robinson. Robinson was concerned, but not too concerned. Reese was a problem. He was not a professional. That was what the problem was. He would do stuff that was dangerous, scare people, push them around. Yes, that was a necessary part of getting things done, but one did it because one needed to do it, not because one wanted to. He sighed. Maybe he should quit. This job may be the riskiest one yet. But the money was good, really good. His first job out of reform school had featured lousy pay and crummy benefits, with one notable exception. Uncle Sam paid for the training. And being young and angry and gung-ho, he took all of it. Combat experience, hand-to-hand, marksmanship, jumping out of anything that moved, special ops. Some things he was better at than others, but he was good at all of it. He could have been career, should have been career, but rules of engagement said they had been a little overzealous after a firefight. <sighs> like they knew anything about what fighting was really like. He avoided Leavenworth with a dishonorable discharge and tried his skills elsewhere. He tried paramilitary for a while, but didn't trust the men he fought with. He then tried personal security. That paid better, but was pretty boring. He found out he had become addicted to the adrenaline, to the edges of chaos. Then he met Dormeyer, and right then he knew that this was his ticket. Dormeyer was rich and probably unscrupulous, most definitely unscrupulous, but Robinson did not care to know any details, and there was the added benefit of no team, no chance for a weak link, just him as the personal army of the big door. Much easier that way. Safer, too. Dormeyer paid a very nice salary, which Robinson lived off of, and a much nicer bonus that consisted of under-the-table cash, untaxed, and immediately deposited in an account in the Cayman Islands. By the time Robinson tired of the adrenaline, he would literally sail off into the sunset of some Caribbean island. That was why he was here. Reese was a punk an undisciplined punk with a dangerous streak, but no different from some others he had dealt with. He could handle the next few days. 
he had done tougher things. Chapter 14. Dancing The problem with dancing was a problem that had been evident in almost every South Dakota town for the past 40 years. It was dying. That was no one's fault, really. It was just a hard place to live. This was not immediately evident in the early days. Settlers poured across the landscape, grabbing up land left and right, starting at the Alleghenies and moving on west. They'd just put the sod to the plow and plant it, using the same methods their fathers had taught them. Those methods had been in turn passed down from their fathers' fathers all the way back to the European continent. Plow it black, keep it tilled, plant in the spring, harvest in the fall, tried and true, every one of them. That was until these methods ran into the great American plains. Of course, no one knew it was doomed right away. Huge land rushes were announced by the federal government on a regular basis, fueled by the railroads and by land-starved immigrants. And the land was perfect, flat as a table, rich and lush, not a rock on it. Weather experts proclaimed the scientific truth that once you broke that sod to the plow, the rains would follow. For a few years, that was true. Bumper crops, land booms, and prosperity. And the farmers were too naive to know that a weather expert is an oxymoron. The plentiful rains were part of a rare wet cycle. When they stopped, everything dried up. The crops and the income that came with it, the grocery stores and the implement dealers, the car dealers, the clothing shops, and the movie theaters, all of it dried up and started blowing away. Then the towns started dying, too. No one wanted to admit it, naturally. Prairie fires, grasshoppers, hail, tornadoes. I mean, it, it couldn't be bad every year. Well, just wait till next year. With every bad event that seemed to happen annually, kids grew up, went off to school, and found that life was a lot easier somewhere else. Farms that were 160 acres were bought and merged into bigger outfits that required fewer and fewer people. So the town started merging their schools together, once, then twice. Then the whole works would be closed down when there wasn't enough taxes or kids to make a go of it. Now, with the railroads mostly gone, most towns clung to the one of two interstates that crossed the state as the only chance for commerce, and dancing was a long way from either. County historians knew that dancing itself had been the bribe, the town fathers had offered to name the town, even the county, after a railroad executive named Frederick Danzing if he would put the line through. It worked, and the next town over copied their success by calling their town Frederick. Frederick Danzing died in the early 20s, and his namesakes were close on his heels. Frederick, South Dakota was currently an unincorporated group of buildings, two bars, a church, a feedlot, and an abandoned elevator next to a discontinued rail spur, and only dancing was left. In fact, in all of Dancing County, only 1,100 souls were left. These mostly friendly, stubborn souls went to church on Sunday, rooted for the nine-man football team, unfortunately named the Dancing Prancers, on Friday, and then went about their business the other days, pretending they were not doomed. Doomed, that was, until the basketball star from out east came to talk about his dreams. Dreams that made people wonder. Maybe, maybe things might change a little. Stranger things had happened.
Chapter 15 Dormire The big door was settling down. He hated being talked back to by anybody, much less a scruffy two-bit reporter. He had been this close to... Well, anyway, that was done. The woman from the PR firm was right. He'd spent about 45 minutes after the press conference working over the plan she'd laid out in the limo. Then he re-entered the convention hall and circulated among those still gathered. As he talked to different groups, he dropped a series of messages. Maybe he'd been wrong about the reception of the community toward his vision. How could a radio station squelch the dreams of an entire town? I mean, this is a business-driven town, isn't it? Why would businesses support a radio station that was anti-business? Grim faces among that small knot of people proved that his words hit the mark. Next, he needed to work on the big thing for that night. He looked at his two employees taking inventory. Robinson was proving to be more versatile. He seemed to be able to read people better and see what their weaknesses might be. Reese was, well, Reese. He'd always been a loose cannon, but he was still a cannon. If he needed somebody to be intimidated or maybe something more, Bobby Reese was happy to oblige, and he was all in on helping tonight. So that was what it was. Bobby, tell me again what happened this afternoon. Reese shrugged one shoulder at a time, tweaked his neck, and grinned. I don't know. She just freaked and left. Said she was tired of waiting and her job was done and, and she just bolted. And took the limo. Yeah, said she was going to come back, but I got a feeling she ain't. Dormeyer stared at Bobby while he went through a series of shrugs and twitches. Jeez, no wonder she'd freaked. He sighed. Well, she was right about her job anyway. He was pretty much done with her now. Good luck getting paid, lady. Screw her. He sighed again and looked at Robinson. Okay, just a little while longer. Robinson, I know it's not what you're used to, but you and Bobby together are going to need to talk with this realtor guy. Book as many appointments as you can for, say, the next three weeks. I want to make sure that anyone who has money or property in this county has an opportunity to book a time to show what they've got. Got it? As far as anyone knows, we are scouting properties through the first part of June and planning on breaking ground in the fall. Both men nodded. And I'm going to go over to the hotel again and make sure that everybody who is anybody gets invited to the party. Be good. He looked hard at Reese. You understand? Bobby flexed his shoulders and grinned. Chapter 16 Happy Jack Happy Jack was not happy. He sat in his office with the phone off the hook and stuck in a file drawer. He had the monitor turned up listening to the station but gave up after a while. He absolutely hated listening to Larry Carl puke all over the airwaves. He thought about tuning into a good station but reluctantly decided that that was disloyal. The lights were off but that was no good either. The girls knew he was in. They kept sliding notes under the door with obvious glee. He massaged his sweating forehead and tried to rub his headache away. The press conference had been that morning, and as the day progressed, the news got worse. 
The big door and the twitchy, grinning guy with the comb, what was his name, Billy and Bubba, had been talking to business owners throughout town about possible land deals and loudly worrying about the negative response they were feeling from the local media. Those same businesses were advertisers on KDAN and knew the power of pressure. They were quickly becoming ex-advertisers. The phone calls that day had been all the same. Hell of a deal, Jack. We got the best thing ever happened to this town, and your fella has to shoot his mouth off. I don't like it, and I don't like him, and I don't want to put my good name anywhere near it. Until he's gone, pull my ads. Hiding was not working. Two hours before, two salespeople had read in the riot act about lost sales and commissions. The commercial log had been printed the day before, and that day it was full of ink where ads had been crossed off. The bitch of it was, Stan Martin was the best radio voice and the best reporter he had ever hired. Happy Jack had counted himself lucky to get him a few years before, drinking aside. While he was thinking, he heard a knock at the door, and three more slips of paper slipped under. Oh, jeez. Chapter 17. Larry Carl. Larry Carl was having a high old time. He wrangled a part-timer in the running his shift so he could go to the press conference and had found the perfect spot standing right behind that Sioux Falls news gal. He was able to sneak quite a few peeks down her blouse and still catch Stan going up against the big door. It was awesome. Presently, he was back at the station, pulling his shift in his usual fashion, smoking cigarettes and holding court on the ratty couch in the front lobby. There, reclining on the naugahyde, he would smoke a cigarette and gossip with the girls about whatever, one ear tuned to the on-air monitor over the couch. Then, with seconds left in a spot or song, he would leap to his feet and bound into the studio, clicking on the mic with one hand and reporting the time and temp while he fished for a cart or record with his other. Those who heard him on the radio would have had a much higher opinion of him if they actually saw how he worked. KDA ad, 14 minutes before the top of the hour and 34 degrees of the metro. He liked to say in the metro instead of in town because to his finely tuned ear it sounded better, even though the nearest metropolitan area was probably Denver. There were brief pauses in his delivery as he grabbed for an album. It was a Dolly Parton album and he told one of his favorite jokes. This is off Dolly Parton's Greatest Tits album. <laughs> Funny. Then, before Dolly could begin to complain about working nine to five, Larry was back in the lobby, slouching in the chair. Did you hear that? <laughs> Greatest tits! I <laughs> get it! He easily spent 15 minutes of every hour, sometimes in 15 second increments, lying flat on that couch and smoking. Achieving such a high level of laziness was an art form, and Larry Carl was a master. That day was a rare one. The girls and he were in fine fettle, hashing and rehashing the whole press conference, wondering with glee just how much trouble Stan was in. Of course, Stan was right. Something was fishy about the whole thing, but if a rich billionaire wanted to set up a resort here, well, why not? And the women! He could imagine all the women that would tag along looking for all the rich friends of Dormire. Uh, too bad about old Stadley, though he said out loud, not meaning it at all. They gotta bounce his ass hard. After a shift, 
He spent the rest of the afternoon not working and lounging around the office, gossiping about if and when Happy Jack would drop the axe. Chapter 18 Stan Stan sat in Happy Jack's office, staring at a point on Jack's forehead while the axe was being dropped. A bead of sweat was forming above the manager's left eyebrow, and Stan wondered if it would materialize into a trickle before Jack was finished with his speech. Jack was perched on the edge of his desk, arms folded, lips pursed. Stan had been witness to many of Jack's poses in the past, behind the desk, seated, with fingertips steepled together, or leaning against a window frame, rays of light cut into stripes by the Venetian blinds playing across his stern features. But it looked like he had finally settled on the benevolent yet wronged employer leaning against the edge of his desk as the best option. South Dakota is a right-to-work state, so Happy Jack could have fired Stan for any reason at all, but had decided on broadcasting under the influence. Stan had to admit it was neater that way, not having to mention the pile of canceled ad contracts stacked on Happy Jack's in-tray and the whole slippery slope of the caving under financial pressure thing. Stan stayed calm, detached, really. He deserved it. His only regret was that he knew he was not being fired for being drunk, but for doing about the only decent bit of reporting he had done the whole time he was there. Oh, well. He was not really worried about money. The truth was he could work at a fast food place and make more money and have better hours, a fact the jocks brought up several times a week. No, he figured he would have a few days to rest and think about his options outside of radio. Maybe now he could get some sleep. Maybe I should get a drink. Chapter 19 Dormeyer He came back to the hotel room. They called it a suite because it was the biggest and nicest room in the hotel, and therefore the town, but it was two steps away from dingy, a few years away from outdated, and smack dab in the middle of blandly sterile. But it did have a fully stocked mini-fridge, and Marie was halfway through its contents as he let himself in. She was a good drinker. She could hold her own with many people larger than her, and she did not get maudlin or weepy. On the contrary, she got brighter, edgier, more alive. Her usually listless eyes got sharper and glinted steel. Her tall, thin frame became more supple and fluid, her gestures less timid and more direct. In fact, he had first seen her when she was half in the bag at one of her father's charity events, and what initially attracted him to her was her direct gaze and bold movements. She was bold now as he closed the door, tossing back the last of something clear, a gin, maybe. You are a son of a bitch, John. It was a tired old game they started years before. She would goad him, and he would react. He backhanded her with a slap, almost without thought or malice even. She fell the way she always did, loose and detached, onto an ugly green couch, a small welt already showing next to her lip, eyes sharp and alive. Well, that was stupid. People might ask how she got that mark. Why did you bring me here? Her gesture took in the room and its tired contents. He shrugged, not sure if she would believe him, and not sure that he cared. 
fresh air. She laughed suddenly with genuine mirth. She had serious allergies, something they both knew, and it was quite possible to believe that he had driven to a place loaded with pollen just to see her suffer. Her laugh and smile died away, and her eyes grew wary as she studied him. So, what happens now? He turned, walked to the mini-fridge, grabbed a beer and twisted off the cap. Not much. Just a thing at the hotel bar tonight. A dog and pony show for investors. Probably better if you don't come. Well, what if I want to? I told people you weren't feeling well, so you better stay here. Did you tell Robinson that? Yeah. So that means I will definitely not be leaving here, huh? Guess not. She looked at him steadily, saying nothing. He looked away. Stupid to even come up here. He liked violence, was comfortable with it in the heat of the moment, but this planned cold violence done quietly so it would look like an accident, uh, that was not who he was. Finally, he tossed back the beer in one long swallow and went for the door. As he opened it, he caught her eyes looking at him in the reflection of the mirrored tiles by the doorframe. Her smile was sour, and her eyes were bright with tears. Goodbye, John. Chapter 20. Stan Stan had learned by now that all transient people got screwed. Every time he moved, he had to get a different phone number, which meant paying an additional hookup charge. This also applied to utilities, driver's license, license plates, and especially rent. Every place he'd lived required two months' rent due before move-in. The extra money was theoretically the deposit you got back once you moved out, unless you damaged the apartment. This was a tired farce, for who was to say what damages are? Was a 20-year-old faucet that started leaking in the last three months really damaged? How much damage did a stain do on a threadbare carpet riddled with pre-existing stains? Stan had an appointment with the landlady for eleven in the morning. He was dancing, so of course she knew he'd been fired. She was probably one of the people who'd complained to Happy Jack. She had a number of rundown places throughout town she would love to unload for the good of the community and at enormous profit. Tomorrow was the beginning of a new month, and he needed to act fast before another month's rent was tacked on. If he was on his best behavior, maybe she would take pity on him and give him back his deposit. Stan had a voice for radio, but he looked okay for TV. He had a good jawline and eyes that were interesting. It shouldn't have made any difference since his job was news, but of course it did. People prefer to get news from people that look good. Out of the military, he had gotten a job on radio at a TV radio combo in Raleigh. He worked nights and weekends, reading the news and pulling a shift on the AC station. Turnover was high, and every time somebody left, the stations did a two-month nationwide search to find, quote, the best talent out there. But every time, they wound up promoting somebody in-house instead. Oh, well. He was young and single and didn't have a life, so he was offered and took a weekend gig doing the early evening news for the TV side. He didn't care for it. 
He didn't like the voices shouting at him through his earpiece or the feigned friendliness the station required between the anchors, but they liked him. He probably would have graduated to a network if the insomnia hadn't gotten to him. Drinking didn't work very well, but it worked some. He miscalculated the dosage one Saturday morning and woke up drunk half an hour before the newscast. To make matters worse, it was a summer schedule, and because of vacations, he was to carry the entire newscast himself, the weather, the sports, the news, the whole half hour. No way should he have been let on the air. Somebody should have stepped in and played a we're having technical difficulties announcement and moved on. But the regular news director was on vacation too, and the part-timer didn't know any better. At least three heads rolled after that day. The news director got tossed for handling the scheduling poorly. The part-time news director for not running an infomercial or, quote, for God's sake, some cartoons even. And, of course, Stan. In the long haul of Stan's career, it was not the only time he was ever drunk at work, but it was the first and most embarrassing time. It ended his television career and started his long, slow trip down the ladder of raided markets to small, dead-end towns, something he called The Fall. Well, thanks for listening to our episode number four. Um, it's interesting, if you are doing your own podcast, you get to make all of the decisions, and there are more than you imagine. If you've ever listened to a book on tape, the first question is, who's going to read it? Well, it makes sense that I would read my own novel, certainly cheaper, and I have vocal training in that line. The next question is, what do you do about voices? Do you use inflections just to hint at a different character? Do you try for full-on different voices altogether? Do you bring in other actors to play other characters? And then, once you go that far, do you use sound effects so you basically have a radio drama inside your head? Well, because I decided to do my own book, I had to realize my own limitations. Yes, I can do probably 20 different voices. And yes, half of them would sound like cartoon characters. And I decided that that would limit uh, the effect, that people would be listening not to the story in their mind, but going, what in the heck? That sounds like Tennessee Tuxedo. And so I decided that, no, I would just try for subtle inflections to carry the story along. And other than that, just use the words and the pauses and drive the story that way. So we are a third of the way through. We'll be back next time with episode number five. I hope you can join me for that. I'm looking for your comments and input. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Jeff Gould. God bless.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.